Programming Throwdown, Episode 92, Basics of UI Design for Engineers with Eric Kennedy. Take it away, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Uh, we're here with another interview episode, and uh, we've got Eric on the call, and we are got a, what I think is going to be a, a pretty uh, exciting topic, something I uh, don't know so much about, and it's a, a really big field, the design, and even just UI design, it's uh, always been on my list of I feel like I've made a few crappy UIs just to get past something. So, Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, I think we've all been there before. So hopefully we'll get some illuminating uh, uh, tips here today. And uh, we have our guest, uh, Eric, Eric Kennedy. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce and uh, tell the folks a little bit about yourself. Hey, yeah, thank you. So my name is Eric Kennedy, and I am a freelance UX and UI designer. And I also teach UI and soon-to-be UX online. Um, but... I didn't start there. Like I actually started from a dev background back in the day. Um, I really hadn't programmed at all until I got to college. And then freshman year, very first semester, there was an intro to programming course. And I, I tried it. And I loved it so much that I ended up switching my major over to software engineering and um, doing some internships as a dev. But basically, I mean... I kind of drifted my way from there. Like I really liked developing, but the thing I the thing I liked about programming was just doing these little side projects where you kind of like thought of an idea, you like cranked it out. You know, you worked until three a.m. It was just you. You didn't need anyone else's permission. You didn't need anyone else's approval. You just you could turn whatever you were thinking of into a reality, and I love that. But then um, doing a couple developer internships, I was like, man, this is it's a little more like industrial scale than I thought. And it, it just wasn't quite the same. So I eventually shifted over to PM. And then from there, um, realized that most of the things I liked about being a PM were things like uh, wireframing new features and uh, talking to users, doing user research or doing usability testing. And at some point, it just sort of dawned on me like, hey, there's a word for doing these things. It's not called being a PM. It's called being a UX designer. So then I jumped into UX design and I was doing that freelance. And very early on in the course of doing UX design, um, I'd have clients who would look at these wireframes, right? Because as a UX designer, like one of the final deliverables I'm going to be handing to my clients are these wireframes of their sites or their apps. And it's, you know, they're just these black and white drawings. They're kind of sketchy. You know, maybe they even use Comic Sans as the font. But the point <laughs> is they just sort of get across like, here's what's on each page of the app. And here's how kind of everything flows together. And like the goal is for it to be usable and simple. And, and, and it doesn't look very nice, right? So my clients would see this and they'd be like, wow, this is cool. Like this looks good. But uh, hey, uh, any chance you could, you know, make it look like an app? I'd be like, ah, shoot. <laughs> like this is this is so outside of my wheelhouse. My first attempts at trying to make trying to make a, a an app look nice, look professional, were just disasters. Um, so I went on this multi-year quest. I mean, it's it's still continuing, but I went on this multi-year quest where, like any good freelancer, I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. And then like frantically scrambled to try and figure out visual design, like while doing other UX projects. Um, and it just kind of took off from there. I uh, maybe some of your listeners have have stumbled upon an article I wrote. It was back in 2014 at this point called Seven Rules for Creating Gorgeous UI. And it was sort of like the first stab at the most important things I had learned about visual design. As a total visual design beginner, as a much more like left brain analytical style thinker, uh, it was just kind of a couple things that I had picked up on that I couldn't find anywhere else, just like really tactical advice. So I was like, okay, I'm going to publish this out here. Um, and then I've continued writing about design since then. Um, definitely uh, do UX and UI and even a little bit of front-end development for all my clients now. So I really like that. So yeah, that's kind of how I stumbled my way into design through like every other subfield in tech. <laughs> nice. nice. So I already have like a, a thousand questions, but okay. So first of all, so you mentioned uh, UI versus UX. So how do you kind of, uh, well, first of all, what do they mean? And what do you mean by the difference? Oh, geez. Yeah, this is like a bad joke in design because it's like there's UX designers, UI designers, UX and UI designers, product designers, UX researchers. Uh, what else we got? Am I missing one? Interaction designers. Oh, there's so many. Um, it's like, what do all these terms mean? I, I, I try and keep it really simple. I say UI is how it looks, user interface. That's how it looks. And UX, user experience, that's how it works. Is it usable? Is it intuitive? Is it simple and easy to use? Nice. So, yeah. So, so you mentioned that you know you would try to draw these uh, 
these sketches of what it would look like that you call them wireframes. Can you maybe like describe, so I've come across this before, but like what kind of tooling do you use and what it looked like? Were you actually sketching on a piece of paper or how were you getting started doing that? Oh yeah. I mean, it always starts on paper, right? Because paper is the cheapest way to throw, like it's the cheapest way to design something. You can make a, a draft that you can visually evaluate yourself or, or show to one of your teammates. And you can do that in seconds, right? You can like get that validation of, is this what we want to do even at the highest level or not? Um, and once you've sketched a bunch of stuff out on paper, you know, it could be a couple ideas. It could be like 10, 20, 30. You're like, all right, now I think I have a good enough idea of what I want to go and put in a digital version of this wireframe. Um, and so for those digital versions, back in the day, I was using Balsamic. Um, I've kind of transitioned over to using Sketch now just because I also do the UI design in Sketch. But either of those apps are just fantastic apps. So for someone who's never built a UI before, so they do some coding and all of a sudden they realize, oh, I really need a, a, a graphical user interface here rather than just command line, although command line is great. Um, what, how, like, what is the first thing for them to try doing? Should they sit down and start trying to do wireframes or should they you know, try finding a framework to start doing all that in? Yeah, well, I think fundamentally the wireframes is more important than the framework. Like frameworks, frameworks are great, but they almost come a little bit later in the process. Okay. Um, so if you're taking the design process as a whole, where let's say you have some app, it's your side project, um, and you and you realize, okay, I'm officially in over my head, I need to make this interface, I've never really done this before. The first step is definitely doing those kind of low fidelity sketches and wireframes and just getting a sense of, does this, does, you know, if I lay things out in this way, can I look at the most important tasks? And each of those most important tasks are actually, they like almost could not be made simpler. They don't require any extra taps or clicks. They don't require any extra thinking. You just make them like as dead simple as possible. And then the things that are less important, those can kind of fade in the background. Um, but that's what wireframes help with. Is like when you get a, when you get a wireframe, kind of run through some of those things in your in your own mind or show it to someone. Be like, hey, if you saw this screen, you know, and we wanted you to create a new user, how would you do that? Mm -hmm. um, a tap here. Wrong. It's like, shoot, okay, now I know I need to make that easier to see or whatever. So that's kind of where it starts. Um, and that's just the UX side of things. When you get to the visual side of things, then it's it's a little bit different. And I can talk about that too. So I just I just did a uh, look-see real quick. So Sketch is, is $100 a year, unless you're a student, then it's $50 a year, which doesn't seem, doesn't seem too bad if someone wants to try it and get started. I mean, it's cheaper than Photoshop. Oh, it's, yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I think it has a 30-day free trial, too. I might be wrong about that. Uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yep. No. So, so how do you draw the line? So, you know, you've kind of alluded that there's this difference between the interaction and the look. So, mm -hmm. so and you kind of described your arc through this giant uh, collection of uh, topics and fields. But how, so someone just starting out, like, how are they, how important is it for them to mentally kind of make the distinction between the sort of style, the look versus the interaction? And which one do you think is better to go focus on first? The interaction is better to focus on first. I mean, I, I think there is a degree to which if someone sees something that looks really just awful, they'll like next, close the tab, move on. They're not going to go download that app because they just don't think it's because you're signaling so strongly that it's just kind of like mm. unprofessional or, or like, a, you know, if you if you give off these indicators in the visual design that it's not very high quality, like there was not a lot of professional experience put into something, it, it could drive some people away unless they really need and want that app and are otherwise excited about it. Um, so there is some of that, but I think it's almost worse where someone goes through the, you know, your your site looks good enough and it's and and they download the app and they open it up and uh, and then you make the tasks that they're going to be doing again and again in your app you make those difficult and unintuitive and they just can't figure it out that's almost worse like um cuz then they got so close and they're still going to end up abandoning you so i think like to be clear making it usable if if people can't use it like <laughs> it sure. doesn't matter how look it how nice it looks um yeah so in that sense the, the usability and the UX are primary. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's interesting to hear you talk that. So I even already, you know, kind of made a joke about command line interfaces, but the kind of field that I've practiced most in, it, to hear you talk is so interesting to hear how different it is. So you mentioned, you know, first acquiring a user on a website and then getting them to take some action, like download the app and, and do something and how thinking about that whole process. And that's literally so far away from anything that I do. It's actually very interesting to just hear how even though, you know, oh, we can both be in a similar field, 
and just have such a different approach. So, you know, for me, it would be a developer, you know, getting an application I wrote. And if it only had a command line interface, that would probably be preferable or perfectly acceptable for them. Uh, or it may totally. just be computers yeah. calling it. And to hear the amount of different things you talk about somewhat sounds overwhelming. Like, oh, I need to make a website <laughs> to convince someone to, to use this? Yeah, human beings are messy. <laughs> so how do you, I mean, do you feel that process? So like you, you originally, you know, were, were starting out as a coder and did some work there. I imagine maybe a little similar to what I described and then moving out and sort of doing more on your own and being responsible for that whole, whole package. Do you feel yeah. like that was a really difficult change for you to do or did, did that come pretty natural to you? Jeez. Oh, you're making me think back. Oh, uh, <laughs> I think, you know, honestly, I think some of it was natural. I've always even though the kind of the UI art school stuff seemed a little bit more foreign to me when I first started it, um, the whole like psychological challenge and kind of putting yourself in the mind of someone who's never seen your site before or seen your app before, I've always really enjoyed that. That's just been mm -hmm. kind of this like deep mental challenge. Um, so I think I, I kind of slid into that very naturally. And, and also, I mean, like I said, I also enjoyed the other parts of being a UX designer. Like, and we could talk about usability testing too, but like when, when you do usability testing, it's almost painful to watch someone, to make something that you think is so good, so usable, so simple, right? And then some, you watch a video or you watch in person as someone struggles with it and just consistently misses everything you tried to make obvious and clear. And it's just, I almost, it's almost masochistic, but I kind of yeah. love that because it's like, you're not so smart. Like, <laughs> like you really have to meet them where they are. And, and when I say you're not so smart, I'm referring to myself. I'm not referring to the user. It's in, in some sense, if you're going to be a good UX designer, you have to realize that it's, it's never the user's fault. Like, like basically I, coding docs aside, like normal software just should not require manuals. Um, yep. and, and it's, it's really sad to watch people like blame themselves when they use bad software to go, ah, oh, dang, I did the wrong thing. I'm so bad at this. I'm so yeah. dumb. It's like, mm. no, no, there was, there should have been a designer doing their job. Um, because there, there are better ways to design, design software. So that's fascinating. Um, so that, I mean, that, those look, sound very valuable lessons, right? And stuff that I would probably be very embarrassed if someone had to sit down and use stuff I wrote. But uh, how, so how do you, like, what would you go about in the beginning? So you're early, you don't have, like, this isn't your thing. Do you just, like, show it to friends and family? Like, how do you get that user feedback? Yeah, I mean, so one of the blessings of working on little side projects is a lot of times you are the user. And if you are the user, you already understand some of the things that your users are going to know and not know when, when you make this app for them. Um, and you'll also be in a community of people who, who are kind of like similar mindsets. So a lot of times, yeah, just show them to like friends, family, coworkers, whoever it is. Uh, like kind of doing that sort of guerrilla user testing really isn't, it's not like you need to go do some official study and like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing too fancy. You're just trying to get any feedback as to like, is this is this basically usable or are people yeah. going to like absolutely struggle from square one? One thing, it seems like a bit of a catch 22 or chicken and egg. I don't know, one of these things, they all sound the same to me, but where, you know, to if you deploy version one of your app and the user experience is really bad, then no one will try version two. But that means you can't make it better. Like, how do you kind of keep from getting trapped in that? Mm, yeah, well, I think. Again, there's something working in your favor, which is the people who are going to try version one anyways are going to be the most desperate people to have that problem solved. So they might be willing to put up with a little more pain. And yeah, it's like as soon oh, as you identify sense. there's issues with version one, um, release version two. Because if you're like, hey, listen, I heard y'all. There's a lot of problems with version one, like, and we're fixing them. Like download version two. You're going to love it. Then the people who are staying with you, like despite how how unusable the app is and despite how difficult it is for them they're going to like just fall in love when you have version two right and and that's only going to accelerate so yeah it is it does seem like a chicken and an egg but i don't think it's unmanageable yeah it makes sense if someone doesn't consider themselves a, a sort of artistic person or someone who uh would would not necessarily find themselves in the same circles with with kind of artsy people does that kind of preclude them from this work? Do you think they can still make progress? Is that an acquired skill or something you're born with? Yeah. Well, I think you absolutely can make progress with it. Like I'm definitely living proof of it. I can't I can't show on a podcast my first designs, but they look <laughs> nothing like the stuff that I've been doing very recently. Um, so in that sense, yeah, you can absolutely um, can absolutely develop at it. And I think what's what's cool and what no one really ever told me is 
it's if you read a lot of design writing online, it just seems like kind of mm, artsy fartsy, for lack of a better term. Like a little, it's a little, it's oh, it's subjective. Oh, uh, you know, there's still all these mystical considerations you never really know what's going to work it's creative it's open-ended and it's like okay i guess technically those things are true but i think you can make a lot of traction on visual design just approaching it analytically so like one one exercise that i would highly recommend to anyone who wants to devote some time into visual design to get better at it um uh, for what, just because they they anticipate, hey, maybe I'm gonna have a side project a year for the next decade, or maybe I want to start my own thing, and I really, you know, when that time comes along, I really want to be able to do the like just ace the visual design of it until I can hire a designer. Um, one exercise I would highly recommend is uh, do copy work, okay? And I can send you a link to an article I wrote about this for the show notes. But um, copy work is just. It's, it is the practice of recreating a design that is better than you could do, and you recreate it pixel for pixel. So if they use like size 32 Helvetica bold or whatever, like you put that Helvetica bold on there, exact same font, exact same location. Um, you can use an app like Sketch or, I mean, technically Photoshop or Figma or whatever to do this. Um, but the idea is just by recreating these designs that were created by professional designers, at least presumably, um, you're going to be unconsciously picking up all these little tactics about what they do. So I, I have all my students do this exercise and it's amazing the things that they recognize. They're like, oh, I never realized how much alignment matters. And it's like, yeah, that's absolutely true. It's mind blowing how important alignment is. You would just never expect it until you, uh, until you start to do it. Or, um, you know, oh, I tried to make this shadow for this element and it totally wasn't working until I realized they had a shadow for the ambient light plus a shadow for the directional light or something like that. That's a little that's a little advanced. That's, yeah. that's a tiny detail. But it's just the whole gamut of things. Um, in this article I wrote, I remember um, mentioning doing some cop work on a site for uh, Epicurrence, a design conference. And uh, one thing that this site did was it had like this size 300 font where it was just a couple of letters, but it was like almost an artistic element. And yet it was type on the page. There were letters. Uh, and I was like, wow, I would never have even thought ever to make something at size 300. And yet it looks really cool when they're doing this. Um, so there's just, yeah, you just pick up these little tips and tricks and things that you never would have expected. Uh, and that's what's awesome about copy work is then any of those little strategies that you that you find in doing this, you can apply those to your own designs. And you start to, it's just like by osmosis. You're like, okay, here's the lessons that this person utilized when doing it. And sure, you're going to miss some stuff. You're not going to understand the rationale for every single decision the designer made. But you're going to catch so much more than if you just look at the design and try and be like, okay, I want to design something like this. It's like, good luck. That is tough. That's a really awesome insight because... I have recently, for some reason, fallen into a rat hole of listening to music theory videos on YouTube or, or watching sort of music theory videos. And they say something yeah. very similar, like basically learning to cover your favorite artist or, you know, play classics and almost, you know, sort of exactly the same insights you're you're sort of giving. But as an engineer, I find that now I'm trying to think of like kind of why it's so different, which is, you know, when I see a video game, which is how often people, you know, get started into interest in coding the amount of things you would need to do to sort of make a all the pieces of doom work from scratch is such, <laughs> such a Mount Everest that you wouldn't yeah. even really attempt it. I mean, you might attempt it, but you would do terrible at it. So I guess like maybe it's just the level of complexity. Like I'm not sure like the behavior, all of that, but it's not a common practice to sort of sit down and copy a piece of code you really like, uh, or at yeah. least not at the well, level you're talking about. This is just a hunch, but I wonder if you could scale down that task. So, like, take something like clean coding practices. I wonder if you could, like, find a, well, just one file. It doesn't have to be the whole project, but you could just find one file where you're like, whoa, this was really well written. It's super clean. I'm going to, like, recreate it line by line and just kind of let that soak in. Like, see how they named mm. stuff. See how yeah. they, whatever. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I, feel like I think a lot, of the, a lot of the coursework you do in university is like this, right? It's like implement bubble sort, implement quick sort. And you know, obviously those things have been done to death, but, but it's you're, not, you're just I, trying I, to train that. But I feel like the difference is slightly different. Right? They're uh, whatever you would call it, and I guess like martial arts, like katas or whatever, like they're specifically for the purpose of learning those things you're indicating. They're not sort of like copy a masterpiece or yeah, copy a, a piece of inspiration. Like no one will be inspired to continue encoding by learning how merge sort works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe one right. person, but not many people. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah, I, I wonder as we get more and more people uh, in the field, right? Like trying, there's always this push to, you know, enable people to to do coding just in various aspects. I wonder if we'll start to have to turn to finding ways of getting people inspired where they really can make something that, even if it's completely derivative, still feels inspirational. Yeah. Hey, and also, I mean, a word about that, like, because that's how it feels at first to just be like, wow, this is this thing I made is completely derivative. But so when you're first starting out in design, and I mean, heck, even when you're when you're much more advanced in design, it's like, I highly doubt I'm doing much of anything that I haven't seen somewhere. It's just that the number of sources that I draw from is so large that it's not like copying off of one thing, it's copying off of like 20 or 30 things for just, you know, some random website. Um, so, and that's I, like, that's what creativity is, mixing and matching to make the most of whatever the problem, like to, to, to make the best solution to the problem that you have. So if you're just starting out in design, yeah, it's, it might feel kind of like, uh, I'm just like copying off this one thing. Well, okay, find, find more things that you like and try and figure out the different aspects that you like of each one. So you can kind of combine them into, into one. I don't recommend just like going to stripe.com and being like, wow, this looks awesome. I'm going to use the same exact buttons, the same exact page, <laughs> you know, don't do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's 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 okay to, to really like other styles and to combine aspects of those. And one other thing I've heard, and I tell my students this too, is like um, if you're worried that you're kind of too much aping one person's style, you're copying off one one style too heavily, it's like, okay, look at that. Soak up all the stuff that they did good, that they did well. Close that tab or close that app or whatever. And then the next day, begin your design and don't look at it again. Don't look at the inspiration. So like design but only through what you kind of soaked up overnight not like you're not allowed to like just look at theirs and then make yours then cross check theirs and edit yours or whatever so that stuff will all help with if you think your designs are like too much based on one person's style yeah that makes sense what is a like a website or an app where you just said wow that was unbelievably like novel amazing design uh recently yeah yeah recent one um so I actually just wrote a blog post, uh, or it was an email to my newsletter, but then I posted it as a blog post too. Um, and it was on a health website called, let me pull it up here real quick. Where is it? It's crazy that I can't remember the name of it. And yet I wrote like a thousand words about it. <laughs> foundation Medicine. So just foundationmedicine.com. But this is one site that when I loaded it up, I was like, wow, they did a lot of things very well. Now we're all going furiously on our computers. Oh, yeah, hand. it looks cool. They start drawing those triangles on that lady's face. Yeah, there's a nice, nice animation. There's high-quality photography. The fonts are really nice. Like, the thing I talk about in my blog post on this is um, they kind of have this motif of hexagons. Like, you see this pattern again and again throughout the site, and it kind of ties it together. But you look, there's, like, this hexagon in the logo. And then you look, and they, have the, they draw these triangles, which, of course, make hexagons. And then if you look at the fonts, like, look at... Um, see it kind of in the e or even the shape of the s a lot of those lowercase letters are sort of shaped like hexagons more than ovals or oh circles. yeah so and you'll see it you scroll down and you're going to see it like with the little dna thing or um, under better care today there's a one and a two which are both embedded in just plain old hexagons so it's just like this little motif comes up again and again and um I mean, not only did they make a thousand other good design choices, but one thing that's very cool about this is they tie it all together and make it look very intentional and like act as one whole. Yeah, this is awesome. So when you yeah. go to a website like this and like those things you point out, that's awesome because I wouldn't have even noticed that those fonts are subtly angled like that <laughs> yeah, until right. you point that out or that their logo that's... was a hexagon. Like I didn't even notice that when I looked at it. Uh, yeah. so, but I mean, I agree. You look at this, you're like, oh, this looks really cool. So how do you sort of, I, I guess I would call it bootstrap yourself up from like, I have no eye for this aesthetic. You know, I go here, I'm like, meh, okay. I, I know it when I see it, like it looks good, but I wouldn't know how to sort of decompose this. Like, is there a good method for sort of starting and what to look at, what to do? I, I guess you were kind of mentioned, you know, trying to copy it and maybe you would sort of figure it out. Sure. If you tried copying yeah, but, yeah, it. Yeah, let's let's. I mean, let's back it up even from there. You want to talk about what you should do from day one? Because certainly the the bit about the hexagons, like that, is not one hundred and one level like design knowledge. I wouldn't expect even my students uh, to like just notice that going to some site. Um, so the stuff that really is kind of more foundational is, um, I would say, just analyzing when you see something you like, 
try and analyze why you like it. Um, and also see if you can find examples that that are kind of like, um, I don't know if counterfactuals is the right word, but like they don't have that particular quality and you don't like the site as much. Like try and find something that is critical to a particular site looking good. So like one thing with this foundation medicine site is my guess is that that um, big face staring at me, that high quality photo, if I used a lower quality photo that wasn't in focus or that was maybe in color, I think they're all black and white. Is that true? Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, that that wouldn't work. Uh, that it would look too much. It would be too much, or it would um, the the yellow triangles over it would then look weird and and wouldn't stand out as much, and would maybe like um, kind of mess with the color of the person's skin too, or something like that. You just wouldn't see them as well. Yeah, it would um, look like acupuncture or something. Yeah, or you might. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Look like some terrible torture. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or I might hypothesize that okay here's this cool font i don't even know what it's called here i'll just go use my what font browser extension it's gt sectra okay gt sectra that's cool um what what do i think works about this font even if i don't recognize the hexagonal stuff maybe it's that it, it needs to be a serif maybe it needs to be a serif because this has to have a very professional buttoned up feel almost like research like um and so just something that's like a, a kind of one of those like high quality like just a font that feels trustworthy and almost prestigious or something and delicate, like that's what I want. And I could go and test that by putting in whatever Helvetica or even a nice sans serif like Proxima Nova or Gotham or something, which I think that's, they use one of those elsewhere on the page. And I could check, I mean, especially if you can use the the little dev tools in your browser and just kind of start swapping things out um, or mess around with the site, see what ruins it, see what ruins the feel where you're like, oh yeah, this isn't as good. Uh, and you can start to analyze. Okay, so this is what the what the, this is what the the goodness of the design's appearance relies on. It relies on this font being serif and large and looking this nice at a at a big size. It relies on these photographs being extremely high quality and black and white. Um, one of the big things that you'll discover in doing this sort of exercise, like I, I mentioned it once before, but alignment is huge. Like you are almost certainly if you're a beginning designer you are almost certainly underestimating how important alignment is and how much you just need to align everything on the page at least if you want kind of a neat simple clean appearance um, basically every element will be aligned with at least one other element and, it, and when i say that centering counts as a form of alignment in that regard so centered or or um, aligned with other elements that's huge uh, you could say similar things about white space um, you know, I'm on a Mac, so I can just press whatever it is. Shift, Control, Command, 4 is the little hotkey I use. Like, I'm going to go take a photo. Mm -hmm. um, oh, my keyboard shut off. Well, I think that's it. Um, and uh, I can get a little measure that'll say, if you press that, that uh, hotkey, you'll get a little, it'll tell you how big of a rectangle you're clicking and dragging on your screen. And you can re I use that to really quickly make measurements of how big something is. How tall is this header? It's like, well, how tall is a normal header? Took me a while. And then I realized, okay, it seems like most headers are like on the order of 70 pixels. Um, and maybe they'll get a little bit bigger. Maybe if it's an extra spaced out website, they'll be bigger. If there's a version that is sticky when I scroll down the page, it might be a smaller version, but like 70 pixels. Okay, just a good place to start. Or like go look at um, so, uh, kind of a, a division of this page of this foundationmedicine.com. It's like how much white space is between uh, say the where it has the one two comprehensive genomic profiling and then that orange box below it it's like on my page that might be like 70 or 100 pixels and until you measure that here let's i'm actually gonna go see let's see what it is yeah one thing i noticed is the ah it is 180 okay to be fair i'm looking at a different monitor it's 180 pixels of white space and and so one thing is like if you were in sketch or even if you were in css but you really shouldn't try and do all your visual design from css disclaimer <laughs> um it's like if you were in css would you write margin bottom 180 pixels like that seems like an absurdly large number and as a beginning visual designer i would be like no it can just be like 50 or something or 48 why not make it divisible but like um the point is when you kind of design visual first and you really analyze what you like and and what seems to be important about it you're going to find all these things wow they align so much more than i thought wow they stuff in so much white space and it's not even crazy um and, and so on 
Yeah, they made those two, the, the picture and then the orange box are at different heights. And that way it doesn't just make a big rectangle. It kind of keeps them distinct. Yeah, they do. That's true. Yeah, this and, is this is awesome. And they kind of do that throughout, right? Even their little link to their blog towards the bottom where there's no picture, they have that same motif repeated with the little... Uh, yeah, right. Yep. And even the, you could say the same thing happens in the at the very top where they have the header image. It's like there's a white rectangle coming in from the bottom, sort of cutting off. It's like a. Oh it's yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. So just hearing you sort of like describe this, I already feel myself uh, brightening at the kind of interesting things you could go in here and do and measure, and I want to try myself. And we we mentioned this a little bit in the sort of warm up before the show. We were talking about. Uh, this notion of like a place to go listen and just hear how designers talk. Like, do you have any good resources for people or recommendation? I know you have some stuff. Are there like, who do you go to just hear how this stuff works and how people think and what they talk through when they sort of decompose a website or, or any related topic? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, my biggest recommendation is, well, let me give the free one first. So um, I have a blog. About, it's mainly about visual design, learnui.design slash blog. And um, there's a number of posts that really break down visual design in this kind of an analytical way. Like we've been talking about it right now. We haven't, I, I would like to believe we haven't really been talking about anything that's too fuzzy or crazy. Um, so you can go there and you can find a lot of stuff. Uh, but also I have a course and it's, and it's linked from the same site, learnui.design. The name of the course is Learn UI Design. And one of kind of my teaching principles in making this course was just letting it be sort of a place where when a student logs on, it's a video course. So they basically look over my shoulder for like 20 hours of video as I'm just kind of narrating the stuff that I would think about. And then all the videos are done uh, in sort of a manner of like, um, like real world projects. Some of them are directly based on client projects I've had. Some of them are a little bit made up. But the idea is each project tries to sort of talk about one particular skill that that lesson is about. Um, so that's that is one option. But um, certainly for just diving in right at the start, the free option is like, check out, check out my blog. Um, and as for like where I hear this, probably it's like, I'm a freelancer. So I, I am, I mean, I'm currently in my home office. Uh, there's, there's technically a couple designers across the street from me, but we don't actually talk about this stuff super often. Um, so one of the biggest places where I hear it is, uh, in my, in my own, in the learn UI design student community, it's just a Slack group, but, um, we've got a lot of, a lot of students now who are, going out there and analyzing sites that they like and don't like and bringing back these little tactics and, hey, I noticed this or I noticed that or why does this look so good or why doesn't this look good? So for me, that's where I get some of this. So for this field, like you mentioned, you know, kind of like Slack rooms or, or for other stuff you'd hear, oh, maybe there's a subreddit where people do this or or something else. Do you feel like are there sort of schools of thought here that people sort of fall into lines like, oh, analytical analysis is really good or no, 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 you can't. There's no rules. Just break all the rules. Like, do, are there kind of different factions within design and how this works? Or is pretty much everybody approach it in a, in a similar manner? I don't know. I mean, maybe my answer is I'm coming from one end of the spectrum here. Like, uh, in that when I learned visual design, I was so frustrated where it's like, okay, I started out awful with colors. And I, I, if you look at some of my first designs, it's like, it's like the, I, the two colors I would use would be kind of a yellowish green that in retrospect looks kind of pukey and, and like brown. <laughs> it's like, you can't have two grosser colors, like just, and, and if you look at most professional designed apps, it's like, I'm not designing like a, a, a theme for a sewer, right? Like it, it's, uh, if you look at most professional designed apps, there's not going to be, you're not going to see brown and you're, you're all, you're not very often going to see yellow green you're more often going to see something that's a bright yellow or or a golden yellow or even just an orange um and brown is really going to be an accent color at most it's hardly ever a theme color um and so yeah i think at one point i noticed almost all the websites were blue like yes. uh, it just seems like yeah microsoft's blue uh yeah just all the company websites seem to be blue well blue blue is we can talk about this too, because if your audience has a lot of like side projects where they need to pick a color for a logo or just kind of go with a one color theme, um, that choice that choice is important. And and so what's happening is when people pick blue, blue like so, let me back up one second here. Okay, 
if you Google for this stuff, you're going to find a lot on the psychology of colors. And as far as I can tell, all that stuff is completely bogus. Like, uh, <laughs> like there's stuff that's like, okay, uh, yellow means like trustworthiness. or I, I don't know what it is. Yellow means passion, right? And, and yeah. then they'll show some yellow logos like Shell, like the gas station. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> this is not yellow for passion. This is yellow because it's a seashell. <laughs> Like, yeah, right. What other color would you make a seashell? Um, and, and so it's like that stuff just didn't help. It was so frustrating. And so I've tried to like analyze what works and, and what doesn't work and only write that kind of content. And one thing I, I think I've landed on with this color, picking a one color for your app, blue is the safe choice. Blue, blue is a practical choice because in terms of the if – uh, if you talk about kind of the natural – luminosity or the sort of the natural brightness or lightness of a, of a particular color it's like yellows are all very bright You're, you can't have a dark yellow it just becomes brown like we don't even have we don't even have a, a thought for dark yellow that's not a thing but yep. blues can really span a big gamut and blues can naturally be quite dark and that's really nice because it stands out from white so you can have say like a link be blue and even if you have dark gray text a blue link is actually it's it's going to it's going to hold its own it's not just going to be like imagine if all your links were yellow they would look like little gaps in the page if you just had a paragraph of text with some links in it those yellow links would just if you squinted they would just disappear so yeah. like blue is a very practical color blue is a very safe color it's a very universal color it doesn't it's not like red red is the most eye catching color that's probably the most important thing to know about red so if you if you pick red for your app's color you're going to be competing with every normal red element in your page every time you actually need to get a user's attention. Every time you actually need to show them an error message or um, kind of, you know, maybe they filled out a form wrong or something and you want to show a little message telling them that. It's like you're also competing with, if you have a red header, that. And a red logo, that. And uh, other red oh, elements. Oh, interesting. Your page. Yeah, it's just like, it's like, it's just shouting. Um, it's like a miracle that the YouTube mobile app kind of works at all. Because they just have a ton of red, and yet it seems to work fine. So, yeah, they um, have that. Uh, you know, if, if something goes wrong in YouTube, they take you to that page where it has a. I think it says something like Patrick. You'd probably know, but it says something like a team of monkeys is working to fix it. I mean, they just they just <laughs> have to take you to a whole new website because yeah, you wouldn't be able to see uh, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's one way around it. Um, I remember when I was first working on one of the color videos for Learn UI Design, I was like, how does Airbnb solve this? Because they kind of have, it's a little bit of a pinkish red and it's um, and it's not so saturated. It's it's not so so rich. So it's it doesn't it's not in your face, but it's like, what do they actually use for error messages? And I looked and their their solution, which is kind of surprising, and it might have changed over time, is they basically make it impossible for you to see an error message. Like they just so carefully allow you, like, choose what you can type, what you can't type, what you can select, so that it's very, very difficult to get into an error state. I basically, like, could not find one. Um, oh, and then maybe there was one where they used orange. And it's like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. But that's suitably far away from from kind of your pink red. And it also looks good with it. So why not? Um, so there's logic to these things, right? That's the, I mean, that's the point of what I'm saying is... We just talked about the practical reasons for choosing blue, um, the practical reasons for choosing or not choosing red, how to deal with error messages if you did choose red. Uh, so there are rationales uh, uh, kind of like underlying so much of this stuff. And it was just very frustrating for me as a beginning designer because it was like, no one is saying these things. Like I have to discover each of these for myself. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one really interesting thing. I always thought that, I mean, until, until we had this discussion that there was like a really strong element of volunteerism that basically you could do whatever you wanted. Um, but but what you're saying is like, no, if you just randomly pick colors, especially like all the primary colors, then your website will look like a five-year-old built your website. <laughs> yeah, which sometimes, I mean, if you're making a website that just needs to be really friendly and maybe like kid-friendly or aimed at kids too, it's like, great, do pick all the primary colors. That'll work That'll work fantastically and it'll signal exactly who the website is for. Um, but uh, I, I would say that it's actually... You said volunteerism. I'm not totally sure what that means, but uh, it just means like you do whatever you want and it'll just work. Okay. So it's kind of halfway in between. I would say you can do whatever you want as long as you have at least one solid reason for it. Um, okay, and, sometimes, yeah. and sometimes your solid reason is like, let's say you're making like a, a website for an environmental nonprofit. Guess what? Every environmental nonprofit has as their theme color. Green. 
screen. It's like, so, <laughs> so what if your rationale was, I'm going to pick something that is not green. It could, and, and in that sense, yeah, there's going to be some things that you shouldn't make it, um, perhaps. But it gives you so much more leeway for what you actually do choose. Um, so that's wonderful. And that counts as a rationale. It's like we need to distinguish ourselves from the sea of green competitors or whatever you call other nonprofits. Um, so, yeah. It's like as long as you can have some solid reason, you still you still have leeway in what you can do. Eric, this conversation has been uh, going amazing, but we're going to take a break for a second. And uh, Jason's going to tell us a little bit about OSCon. Hey, everyone. So this is the uh, last opportunity. Uh, you know, we do the show monthly and, and the conference is going to be later on this month. So definitely check it out. Um, you can still use the OSCon.com slash PT. That's for programming throwdown. And um, you can get a pretty sweet uh, discount. Um, if you don't want to use that link, um, you can also use the discount code. So when you go to check out, you do PT25 and get 25% off. I tried PT99.9. It doesn't work. PT25. That's the code you want to use. You get 25% off. Um, it applies to all the, the different passes. So bronze, silver, and gold passes on any of those, you can get 25% off. Um, there's a bunch of open source, uh, folks that are going to be there. Um, there's also just even more broadly, um, a lot of opportunities to understand what's shaping software development. So they're going to be talking about AI, they're going to be talking about blockchain, pretty much cloud computing, you know, anything that you would read about if you're trying to read, you know, contemporary news on on um, CS or software engineering is going to be talked about at length from like industry experts. So people from Google, people from AWS. Um, so yeah, give it a shot. Uh, the passes start at $750 um, when you register with that code. Um, so try it out. And, uh, you know, uh, let us know how it goes. If any of you go to the OSCon, shoot us an email. Let us know how you, what you thought about it. Check it out. All right, Eric. So we, we talked a little bit about design and about colors. And I, all this is actually extremely fascinating. But, um, you know, once someone gets past sort of thinking through what they, they want a website to look at, there's the kind of, I, I want to spend a few minutes talking about, I don't know what you call it, like brass tacks, the fundamental aspects like, what equipment do you use to do your designs? We were talking about, you know, maybe don't choose a framework at first later, but I, most of the people listening to this are probably coming from a programming background and they're, they're itching to know, like, what web framework should I use? Or if I'm building an app, like, what language am I going to use? Or how am I going to make the design look? Do you have any sort of thoughts or comments about directing people on, on first steps down, down that avenue? Sure. Yeah. I, so it's it's a little bit tough because it depends on like how deep you want to get in the design rabbit hole. Um, I think maybe the elephant in the room is what about bootstrap? And I, I would just say the answer to this is going to vary depending on how deep you want to go with design. But uh, bootstrap is great in that it really makes it really solves some problems that it would have just been nice if like native HTML just had done. Um, and it, and it gets things that look nice and consistent. But if you use the default fonts and the default colors and the default icons, you're going to have a site that looks like a bootstrap site. And that that is kind of like wandering into, into the environmental NGO space with a, with a green logo that has like a tree growing out of a hand or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're definitely not setting yourself apart by doing that. And yet I recognize at the same time, it's like depending on what else you have going on, if you're coming from a back end perspective to just be like, yeah, just learn CSS and roll it all yourself. <laughs> it's like that's a tall order, especially if you're also trying to learn learn UX and UI design as well. Um, so I'm not necessarily going to say that. That's, that is what I do for most of my client projects at this point is just do it do it all custom. Don't really start with a framework. But um, I think that's more just a personal preference. And I've been able to invest the, the time over the years to, to get good at the CSS and the visual design and knowing how they relate. So what you describe, in, and this is in my field, so it's probably a really poorly formed question, but I'm going to ask it anyways, which is, um, you, you know, describing drawings and wireframes and static things. Um, but that, that healthcare website we were looking at earlier has some animation. I imagine sometimes people are going to be designing things with interactivity where there's going to be things moving around or changing or shifting or, or sort of flowing, not just a sort of static layout. How do you sort of reason about adding those elements or how to bring those in? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is something where like whatever your prototype is, whether it's a prototype in code or a prototype in some some app that is made for animation, like Framer is a good example, um, then you can, you, you almost need to 
get to that level before you can make the call of, is this what we want to ship or not? Um, so for me, a lot of times that does just happen in CSS because it's like, it's not going to save me any time to write it in Framer first. I'm still going to have to to get in there and tweak the, the easing curves and whatever. Um, but this is something that I would say as... Even if you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to do a site with a bunch of animation and crazy stuff going on. It's like, well, do you have hover states? Do you have hover states on your buttons? Because that's something where you can try and make that call in a program like Sketch and say, okay, I think my hover state is going to be this variation. It's going to be blue. It's a blue button. But then when I have a hover state, it's going to be a slightly darker, maybe a little bit more saturated version of that same blue. And you kind of tweak it and you put those colors in your code. And it's like you need to play around with that in your browser, in my opinion. You need to, you need to see that in your browser before you can actually say, yes, this is what I want or this is not what I want. It happens all the time where I'm like, okay, this looks good in Sketch, but then I get it in CSS. And it's like, oh, this feels actually like really drastic. Like, hovering hover states are it should be subtle but it should be noticeable and it's like just getting that balance kind of right it's like i don't need something to flash too too dramatically um or whatever and yet i do want people to be able to tell when they're hovering on something Every, everything almost everything clickable should have some sort of indication that you can click on it so that's a problem even if you don't go deep into animation so how transferable is the the you're sort of describing you know kind of like css which to me makes it sound like you're talking mostly about sort of web stuff but if someone's saying, oh, I'm going to make an iOS or Android app, like how transferable do you feel? Like if someone came to you with a, a job to go design, maybe that you have that in your portfolio, but come to you and say, hey, I want to design for an iOS app. Um, do you feel confident in being able to transfer your skills or is it really a whole different world? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So with visual design in particular, the foundations are exactly the same. There's some things that are a little more important on, on web and bigger screens, tablet and desktop. Um, like white space is just going to be, it's going to be a little bit more. Uh, and then there's other things that are more important on mobile. Like you may need to get quite specific with exactly uh, what font sizes and styling you use, just because you can't have a huge range of font size and, st and styles. Like things need to be pretty compact or else they're going to run run over into multiple lines on, and be very, very long on a mobile screen. So because you have less of a range to work with, you need to get more precise in that range. Um, but yeah, overall, the two, the two skills are like very transferable. The thing that's more different is the UX. The UX of a mobile app, there's certain paradigms where, like in my opinion, the paradigms we've developed for how to navigate around um, mobile apps are brilliant. If you look, we use every, we use, Material design is a fantastic example of this. We use like shadows to kind of hint at different layers of things that are sliding over each other or merging into one thing or dropping off the side of the screen or like they come on from the side of the screen while the content you were looking at kind of shrinks towards the background or something. Like there's just, we use so much um, motion and sense of location and navigation. And it's actually really subtle, but you can open up any any like, well professionally designed app on your phone and and just pay attention to when i go from one screen to the next they're almost never like just on like totally the same level like it's going to appear as if something is rised is is like once one uh, notch closer to you and is sliding over the screen that you were just looking at um whether it's from the side or from the bottom or whatever there's just so much motion in 3d uh and that's and that's just one thing but like the ux of mobile apps extends a lot beyond that we've just really had to deal with this these space constraints and i think we've kind of like risen to the challenge yeah that makes sense that's awesome i noticed with my chase app it's like that when you go to pay there's like this three-step process and each step is sliding over and it makes you feel like all the three steps are there at the same time. You're just only looking at one at a time. It makes you feel like there's kind of this landscape that you're crossing. Yeah, it's fantastic. I don't know that I'm going to stake any examples on the Chase app, but like that, what you're saying sounds <laughs> sounds ex like a, a perfectly smart decision to make as a designer. Um, yeah, you almost do want to give users a sense of place even when they're in this like abstract digital experience. So we talked a little bit about, you know, kind of like replicating things that we like or existing stuff. And then occasionally I'll run across something on the web where I don't want to say like a fad, but something new is catching on. So the one that uh, I remember vividly recently is when you would scroll down a page, the page wouldn't scroll down, it would scroll over. Um, I don't know what that's Wait, called, what? but it would scroll to the right. So you, if you scroll down the page, the page wouldn't move sort of up on your screen. It would slide to the right yeah, it's called and it would just keep sliding and called. sliding. Yeah, 
but but obviously like some ideas probably seem crazy at first but then they 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 catch on like how do you for i guess especially beginners like what is the balance between doing what it it seems sort of safe and sort of pushing the boundaries or breaking the oh my gosh this is a good question and 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 i i um I'm going to give this answer of it depends, which I hate because whenever I say it depends, it means I don't really know. It means there's probably some divider line that I just haven't thought about enough to articulate yet. Um, but I, because a lot of trends in design, I feel like actually make a ton of sense. So when things started going much flatter at 20, around 2013, 2014, like all of our shadows and, and gradients just kind of dropped off. Um, and all of a sudden, there were a lot of trends around um, like just uh, say like really clean, simple fonts. And then shadows came back a little bit. And there have been certain trends around shadows. There were these like diagonal shadows that were there for app icons for, for like a year or two. Um, and they looked really cool. And they still kind of look cool. Um, and, and there's no harm in using them. But it was definitely like a trend where it like very suddenly appeared and was adopted by a lot of people all at once. Uh, and... And then um, I feel like maybe in the last couple of years, we've gotten so used to seeing these clean, simple, flat sites with like very plain sans serif fonts that now you see many more interesting serif fonts, especially at big sizes where you can see all the details of those of those fonts. And that's kind of a trend, but it's also an awesome trend. And when people pick these high quality serifs and show them at really big sizes, like uh, that that um, Foundation Medicine is a, is a decent example of it. We talked about how cool that font looks. It's like, I didn't even know what that one was. Um, so yeah, in some sense, that's trendy. But it's also a trend that's very, that's, it, it makes sense given where we are at and what everything else looks like at the time. So I wouldn't necessarily say don't use, don't do trendy stuff. Um, like it can work. And if, and if you like how it looks, like, <laughs> go, and you have a rationale for why it should be that way, go for it. Like, I'm not going to tell you not to. Yeah, I mean, I guess... With web, one of the things that's nice is the ability to update. It's not like a book where you ship it and then that stays locked in that state forever where you're going to feel in five years like groaning when you remember what it was it looked like. Yeah. You you, you can ship a... If it's trendy and it goes away in two years, you can always update your website and, and do the new thing. Yeah, totally. So you also... One thing I want to uh, talk about for a few minutes uh, before we finish up here is you mentioned that you do freelancing. Mm-hmm. And I know this is something that, that comes up a lot not necessarily in design, but even just in programming, like working for the man or working for yourself or, you know, this back and forth and freelancing. Do you want to talk a little bit about how your experience has been freelancing? Like, how do you, how do you get work? Yeah. Like, do you, do you feel scared about that? Like, I mean, what has that been like for you? Cause I feel a lot of people will at some point in their career sort of have that as an option or a question. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Okay. The way I frame getting work as a freelancer is like this. The very first project that you have to try and find, you have, say, you say you don't have any freelance experience at this point. Um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough because you're going to need to convince someone to pay you money to do something that you have not done in the exact capacity that you're suggesting. And um, and that's okay. Like, that's just kind of the way of things. And and it, it should, it, like, you can't change that. So you do your first project. But if you do a good job, the moment you've done that first project, you now have, even if you had to go to a bunch of meetups to like find this person or you like posted a, on a bunch of job sites or whatever you had to do to track down this project, the moment you've completed your first project and done a good job at it, you now have two potential avenues where your next project could come from. It could either be A, the same person who wants to hire you again because you did such a good job, or B, someone that this person tells like they tell someone else, one of their other like little CEO startup friends or someone else in the industry, hey, you're looking for a designer? Hire this person. Like Eric did such a good job, so you should hire him too. Um, and the more, and so that makes finding the second project easier than finding the first one. And like it just continues. And if you were to kind of chart this amount of work it takes to find each project, each incremental project as it comes. It's like on the whole, that chart should decrease as it moves to the right. You should just see the amount of work go down and down and down. And eventually it hits zero where you don't even have to find, you don't even have to spend extra hours finding a project. Like you'll still need to do an intake process to make sure you're a good match for that client and they're a good match for you. But at some point it's like they emailed you and maybe you said, yeah, Like, uh, let's talk a little bit now. And if this looks good, I can start in two weeks. And you just smoothly transition right over to the next project. Um, And then at some point, that that amount of incremental work to find the next client would, theoretically, it goes negative. 
which I just interpret to mean uh, you actually have more people coming to you with projects than you can actually take on. There's more demands for your time, more people who want to hand you money to do what you love than you can possibly say yes to. And that's fantastic um, because then you can really start to specialize and um, and you're not necessarily worried about the, about the future and, and you don't necessarily have this feast and famine cycle that that afflicts a lot of freelancers. Uh, but the thing is, it is, it is the toughest at first. And if you just kind of keep your eye on trying to get through that beginning hump to get to a point where it is smoother sailing, like it, I, I'm not going to speak for everyone here, but it just feels like it gets better and better. So you, I mean, inevitably you have the, someone doesn't pay or you did something and the communications was poor and the expectations are mismatched. Do you sort of establish up front how you plan to deal with that? Do you just sort of take it as it comes? Like, I feel like that's a sort of unknown, un- or yeah, unknown, unknown. The thing that sort of scares people, like, well, what's going to happen? Yeah, I've had very few problems with not getting paid. And I believe even for people who really hemmed and hawed. And, and also, okay, another disclaimer. These haven't been for years. Like, the the clients who 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 are who either don't pay you or or who really put up a stink about paying you those are the clients they're kind of the lower quality clients that you have to settle out for early on in your career like when you get farther along you can and and you have you know when you have that that curve of how much incremental work is it to find your next client and that starts to decrease it's like at some point you can just pass on someone who has those warning signs because one thing i've learned is clients Typically, if they ha- it's no client has just one red flag, and other than that, looks like all green lights. Like it's either no red flags or like five of them. <laughs> so if you have a client that is like asking you, at least as a designer, they're like they seem like they're going to be really micromanaging. Like their feedback is not particularly good. Their communications are not great. It's like that's also going to be the client who struggles to pay you on time. Uh, and the moment you can avoid them, you should. <laughs> but in the in the beginning yep. days, you, you sometimes you just kind of have to risk it. Um, and that there's, was like there's a. a- there's an interesting philosophical point there because I've noticed the same thing in dealing with with intra-office situations that that invariably uh, there are times where just it's just like a like, like a meteor strike where just something happens that just causes conflict. Um, but 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 99% of the time when there's a conflict, one of those two people or probably even both of them or all of them have been in many other conflicts. So it's like that that trend of you see something bad, there's probably a lot of other bad things. I mean, what's this saying? It's like if you see a cockroach, there's 50 other behind the wall or something like that. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, yeah, that's kind of, yeah. it's the same, it's the same point. Yeah. Wow. That was a, that's a scary, I don't like that saying. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> I, I don't think it's true. I mean, it's an old wise tale, but, but, but yeah, the idea is, you know, you're right that you can, while you're setting up the contract, it sounds like you, 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 um, so I guess when you set up these contracts, you probably do it in person or on VC or something. So you can kind of see how the person is, you know, uh, get that nonverbal communication. No, honestly, no. Um, so despite living in Seattle, which is like a decent place and there's plenty of potential clients, a very small proportion of my clients have been uh, local. It's it's more often that I'm going. It's it's a remote job. Um so, which is cool because it means you can freelance from basically anywhere. Uh, but yeah, I, I, why? So that's a good question. Like, why have I been able to do it without seeing the person's nonverbal communication? Um, you know, I'm not, I don't know. There might be an aspect of luck to it where it's like, uh, or, or I, learning to identify those other red flags apart from, oh, this person probably just won't pay me on time. Um, certainly, I mean, one one warning sign for not getting paid on time is, is this project totally self-funded? Like if there's someone who is not discernibly rich, who is paying you thousands of dollars, that's going to hurt them a little bit. And they might have a lot of opinions that they want to make sure, and a lot of things that they want exactly right before they pay you. And that's no fault to them, but, but it's just something that you have to recognize as a freelancer. Okay. This might be, this guy might be like really exacting, like overly exacting, perhaps. He might actually make my life like pretty miserable and not worth the, the money that I'm getting for it. Um, so it's just a potential thing to, to look out for. But if you, um, especially if like you already have a, a client who's raised money from VCs or something and you're, and you're doing some work from them or they're wealthy from another business and they're just, they're trying to start this other thing and, and they're getting you on board. It's like, those are, those are good signs. Um, 
because one, I mean, one, it means they're they're not like lacking for the cash that they will pay you with, which is great. They can keep up their end of the bargain. But uh, it also means that they've passed some 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 sort of real life filter for doing quality work. If you've raised VC money, like ostensibly, you're one of the the few and one of the select, and someone thought it was worth taking a very large bet on you. Um, Likewise, if you had a prior business that was really successful, that's also a, a real life filter for people. Like not many people have successful businesses and are then going to start these projects and, and pay you thousands or tens of thousands of dollars just to see how the project goes. Um, so like those are good signs. I found that the very best clients are extremely busy. And, and, and the funny thing about it is the very best clients I've had they could have been designers. In another life, they easily could have done my job. I'm just there so that they can focus on the stuff that only they can do. And I just like make the design problems go away for them. So that's what I've learned. That makes sense. That's awesome. We've talked a little bit about people who who kind of work remote and obviously like what you're mentioning, like I don't know of a way to be more remote employee because you're, I guess you're just by yourself, but it sounded like you didn't have anybody else. Yeah. Um, how do you, I mean, how often do you find that you uh, work from home versus work elsewhere, not unless you're on a customer site, but just you just travel somewhere and you're, you know, this is kind of always the dream you see sort of see pitched online. Like you, you could work from anywhere, you know, you could take a vacation to Rome and be working from your hotel room in Rome. Yeah. Um, if that's something that appeals to you, do you find that that's something that you do a lot or that you find is a little overrated? Um, hmm. Maybe both. I think the thing is I now have two kids. So long-term travel, like, so, uh, earlier this year, we actually went to Spain for about a month and a half and it was really it was really nice it was really relaxing i got done a fraction of the work that i intended to um a lot of that was just now i'm traveling with a family and so uh, especially with young kids it's like that's it's just tough um having a routine at home is a way better place for productivity and that was something i kind of craved by the end of that trip is like ah like i really want to like actually get stuff done um yep but at the same time like, um, I was freelance when my wife and I got married and we, I, I mean, this was just incredible. We, we said, wow, we don't actually need to like have an end date on our honeymoon set ahead of time. We can just keep going. And whenever the bank account runs low, we'll pause, I'll work and, and then we'll keep going. And that was what we did. And so we took like a, a nine month lap around the world and it was just incredible. Wow. Um, yeah. So like the dream is real. Uh, and it's and if that's something where, you know, if, if anyone in your audience is thinking about doing that, yeah, go for it. It's so possible. Um, but it's also it's not for everyone. Like it's it's something where I think I will do more when I have older kids, like in terms of travel. But um, not nah, for right now. It's just a slightly different stage of life. So I'm not really in the like doing long term travel, living the the Tim Ferriss life or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that sounds pretty cool. And, and you mentioned, so you're sort of married and have kids, but do you find that you look to other sources for sort of the water cooler kind of talk? Do you kind of like, how do you fulfill that banter with other people that you might uh, normally have around the office, but that's sort of obviously missing in your setup? Oh, yeah. Well, so the, the water cooler banter is not really something I miss. I mean, I, I think it helps that I am totally an introvert. So um, by the time five o'clock rolls around, I've had like maybe one meeting, like I'll have like two meetings a week or something. And so by the time five or 530 rolls around, I'm like, cool, I am now like amped up to like go talk to friends and hang out and just have a good time all night. Or, you know, to a reasonable time in the night because gotta get up but um <laughs> so i think that helps i've de like for me it's just a personality thing i think almost everyone else i've talked to who's been alone in their office as long as i have is kind of like this is a little miserable man and i'm like i don't know i like it it works for me uh so yeah introversion helps i don't know what else i can add there I always just love hearing different people's take on it because like you pointed out, it works for you, but other people seem to be made miserable by it. So Yeah, yeah, it's tough. Well, and that's kind of the freelance thing in general. Uh, and what I say to people, I, it seems like everyone these days is just kind of, they wonder. They just wonder about freelance. They wonder if they could cut it and, and have just a, a life that's like 100% on their mostly on their terms or whatever. Um, and it's like, yeah. For some personality types, that's totally worth it. And I think I probably could have called this about myself. I had just had never really stopped dreaming about starting my own thing or going freelance or whatever. Um, but for some people, oh my gosh, that's not that's not the answer. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be alone. You're going to have all this risk. It's going to be really, uh, uh, it's just going to weigh on you very heavily. And the, the rewards that come with working on an established team, on an established project um, with the same people day in and day out, uh, and that, and that um, 
and getting a reliable paycheck and not having to worry about that. It's like for some people, that's that's much a much better deal. So it's like, yeah, freelance. It's just not it's not for everyone. And I totally get that. This has been awesome. Um, before we sort of wrap it up here, you mentioned you have a blog uh, that there's a, a course you have. Is there anything else that you want to pitch to people? How do people get in contact you, with you? Um, all that fun stuff. Yeah. So probably the best way, if you liked the stuff that I said about design, the best way to check out more is to go to learnui.design. Uh, and that is, there's really, there's three things there. There's, uh, so I do have a course on user interface design. It's an online video course, 20 hours of video. It's like pretty comprehensive. It's everything I wished I had known when I first started doing visual design. Um, so you can check that out, learnui.design. And then there's also the learnui design blog, learnui.design slash blog. That's all the like, it's, I mean, it's, a novel, at least, worth of free design content. It's all very analytical. It's just I've really tried to write in depth and write this sort of stuff that, again, I wished I had heard when I started doing this. So check that out as well. And there's also a newsletter where I send even more content, most of which, uh, well, basically all of which is not on the blog. And that's at learnui.design slash newsletter.html. Um, hooray for using static pages. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's probably the, the best place to learn more. And then you can also, if you have any questions, you can email me, eric at learnui.design or find me on Twitter. It's eric, E-R-I-K-D as in David Kennedy. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, this is yeah, awesome. this is amazing. Um, I, I feel like I'm going to go sign up to your newsletter right now because I'm curious to, to keep a pulse on this. This stuff's been fascinating. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Thank you for having me. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.